as a Canadian founder, if you want to be competitive on a global scale, go compare yourself with these entrepreneurs who have done it before. And like the C100, there's these cohorts in Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, et cetera, East Coast. And what you're able to do is sort of look to the founders who came before you who found greater levels of success than you have and, and compare your strategies and, and, and they can challenge your strategies. And, and I think that's really important um, for driving up the ambition and the courage of Canadian founders to take bigger risks. Well, today I'm really excited because we get to speak with the wonderful Kyle Campbell, uh, CTO and founder of, or CTO, CEO and founder of CTO.ai. You can see why I made that mistake. Um, let me just let me just set this up, uh, Kyle. So Kyle Campbell is the founder of C and CEO of CTO.ai, a platform for rapidly scaling DevOps teams. Kyle founded CTO.ai in 2017 after working with DevOps teams as an investor and an advisor to a wide range of technology startups. The company provides an open registry of shortcuts to help technical leads at startups quickly scale, developer teams and streamline developer productivity with a 10x, that is 10 times. Previously to CTO.ai, Kyle founded Retsley. Retsley, a company that helped developers access real estate data, which was sold to Zillow after just eight months. That's incredible. Kyle, welcome to Afternoon to you. It is so nice to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's quite a mouthful. It's never easy to be the CEO of CTO.ai. <laughs> so uh, you did very well with that one. It's, it's not an easy phrase to, to put out there. Well, well, thank you for saying so. Thank you. For, I've been founder and CEO of CTO.ai. Right. So That's right. we're, we're, we are, is there, is there, a, I mean, it's already a pretty short way of calling it. Is there a shorter way that you refer to in-house? As the company? No, just CTO.ai. Uh, we, we keep it pretty, pretty literal. I have a history of naming things relatively literal with a bit of fancy, fanciful indication. Uh, Retsley was also um, mm -hmm. something of a literal translation of something that's called the real estate transaction standard. And so we call mm -hmm. the company Retz Lee. Um, so yeah, no, no magic, uh, magic branding, uh, here, just very literally naming things exactly what we enjoy to spend our time on. You love your acronyms. I get that. I get that. And I love that. Um, well, so we met maybe, I guess it was a year and a half ago, um, I, I would say, probably when you, when you guys were, you know, really generous and sponsored the uh, the, the Van Hacks Hackathon and uh, you got to be a judge. And I was really impressed by, well, I was impressed by two things, actually. A, that your, your, your questions and your thoughts around judging um, Honestly, it was really it was it was great. Uh, I could see that you have that analytical mind, but also the team that you sent to be either supported or support your HR uh, initiatives or anything. They were fantastic. Like I was really impressed. You could tell you, you know, world class organization right away. Um, you know, it's not just the founder that does that. It's the whole team. And, um, you know, clearly you've created something that's, that's great. So I, I, I applaud uh, and, and congratulate you for that. Um, so tell you what. I read out what CTO.ai sounds or says, and that was so tech jargony. Tell me in an easy way, what is it that you do? Yeah, and that's also a bit of an outdated uh, example in some ways. We're obviously an early stage product uh, company iterating through product market fit, but we always ha haven't always been a product company. We started out as a company who was helping uh, startups support their engineering teams through managed DevOps services. When we talk about DevOps, what DevOps is, is the philosophy and the best practices of how to run an efficient 
and highly scalable engineering organization. And then you immortalize those into tools. Often when companies try to roll up developer tools, it's very time intensive and cost uh, prohibitive to adopt a lot of the best technology. So we looked at this problem. We said, how could we improve the experience that software developers have when they're delivering and releasing software to production so they could release more rapidly, roll back more quickly, and most importantly, measure everything. Because when you can measure it, you can manage it. And one of the most challenging things in software engineering over my 20 year career is creating that business case for technology. I generally believe that technology is a diminishing return over time. And so what we've tried to do is rethink the developer experience or the developer workflow with a new kind of continuous integration and continuous delivery software that runs natively in Slack and allows you to essentially automate different tasks within your developer experience and distribute it to your whole team without having to think through as much of that complexity as you'd otherwise. This means you get a higher leverage on the time that your developers spend shipping software and you can hire from a broader pool of talent, making your team uh, more accessible to junior talent who are often more available in the market. Uh, so this has been something that we've been working on for about three years. And at the beginning of this year, we shifted gears uh, quite, uh, quite a lot to really just focus on the product um, and sort of a venture capital track. And that's what we've been working on for the last three quarters is uh, having this product in market and, and, and fitting it into these organizations in such a way where we're helping create uh, a lot of efficiency for software teams and uh, driving that justification that the businesses need to further reinvest in the software development uh, tooling layer. Oh, very interesting. I mean, data is king and you have to know where you are in order to, you know, check out your velocity and make sure everything's healthy. So, uh, you know, I love to know that there is a, a great local company making, you know, tools so that you, um, everyone else makes great <laughs> software, which is, which is kind of a, you know, you've got a little bit of a, a parental thing going there for you, which I, which I think is pretty cool. Um, so tell me, tell me about the founding of the company. Where, where did it come from? Where, where's, where's the idea from? Yeah, it feels like a long time ago in some ways. Um, it happened in some ways by accident. I had sold my last company to Zillow and spent two and a half years there. And I was anticipating a big life change, which was my son being born. At that time, I was really asking myself, what do I want to do next? And what would be the most meaningful thing for me? I thought at that time that being able to invest in startups would be one of the best things I could do. But obviously I was not going to be able to compete with legitimate investors as this, um, you know, nobody from North Vancouver. I wanted to bring um, some of my experience around software development and building technical teams that I'd sort of proven out during Retsley. And as a, uh, in doing that process, what kept happening is these companies kept trying to hire me as their CTO. And I started to really dig into this problem, which I understood to be this huge sort of cost center within software development where it's hired to hire and scale these engineering teams. So I started asking myself, how could we solve this problem? And so naturally, uh, as an entrepreneur, once I started to understand that there's a $300 billion market of lost developer productivity at every year, I really couldn't ignore that. Um, chose to bootstrap the business for as long as possible to figure out how we could approach this very um, large problem of using data and business intelligence to enable software infrastructure and development teams and sort of came to a place last year where we felt the timing in the market was right and the trajectory of the business um, would allow us to shift gears into a more product-centric opportunity. Very, very cool. Well, what, the name again, okay, I'm gonna harp back on the name. You, you, you said, you know, you like your acronyms. I, I totally dig that. Um, but CTO.ai, and you said it was founded around 2017? Correct. So 
getting that domain, what was the, what was, cause the domain is beautiful. Like even just the domain is beautiful in the simplicity and it says what it does. I mean, you are, you know, CTOs require you and it's the AI, it's the, you know, the, the intelligence behind it. Um, what, did you have other options or did the domain drive the name or did the name drive the domain? I was surprised that that domain was available. I also have many other domains of a similar context. And I tend to be someone who goes on these sort of rapid domain buying sprees uh, in the middle of the night. And this was one of those ones where I was fortunate and thinking through what would be possible names. And uh, it was available. So I jumped on it. And I think uh, when you know it's right, you know it's right. And for me, it's right when it's, you know, not flashy or far abstract. It's as literal as possible. And at that time, the problem I was really facing or the sort of opportunity, I guess I should say, I was really facing was these teams who kept trying to hire me as their CTO. And at the time I thought about it a little bit more like a fractional CTO. And now we think about it a lot more like a, a cloud product. Um, but the name was always something that seemed very uh, direct and, and certainly resonated with uh, the key people who were trying to reach out to, to support with our product, which is CTOs, especially early stage CTOs who are growing quickly and want to make sure that they're supporting their engineering teams. For sure, for sure. I, I got to admit, the first time I heard the the, the, the company name, um, I think it was a, a maybe a C one hundred. It was something that I remember. I remember reading about it in an email or something, and I instantly thought, "That's not a Canadian company. That's a San Francisco company." And they paid a lot for that domain because that's good marketing. Like that's really good. So I was I was actually really tickled when I found, "Oh, it's a local company. Okay, good work." Yeah. And I think uh, it was about a hundred dollars a year or something, and bought it here in North Vancouver. So that's nice. very nice of you to say. Yeah, well, you know what, because we looked at, you know, um, when we, we were two tall totems and we changed our name, it went to TTT, you know, dot studio, but we looked at TTT.com and it was for sale, but it was for $3 million US and we just decided it wasn't worth it, mostly because we didn't have the $3 million to begin with. But it's just an insane amount of money to think that, you know, that's just a, a few letters. So the fact that you're able to get it so succinctly, I, you know, I, I think that's super cool, super cool. Well, you know what, you're in a super nerdy um, job. I mean, you're talking DevOps, you're talking, you know, stuff that, that 90% of the world isn't going to really understand. Um, but you're self-taught, which is really impressive. I think, um, you know, I remember back in the day I was, I was doing coding when I was seven back way, way back in the day too, but not at like a super high level. Tell me about the experience. What got you into coding? What, what, what gave you the bug? Probably entrepreneurship. I, uh, my father was an engineer. He worked in a tire plant fixing machines. He was the person that would wake up at 2am and go in and fix the machines that would cost the company, you know, millions of dollars if they weren't fixed by morning. And so I think I got some of it through, um, through sort of, I guess, genetics, but really there was an entrepreneurial spark for me early on. And, and I never, should I say, put technology first. But I did have sort of a, an obsessive and tenacious need to learn things. And really for me, the driver was I wanted to create my own ideas and software was a way for me to create ideas. And where it started really was a passion for music and wanting my band to be um, famous and trying to create communities and websites for my band and then turning into event promotion as a teenager. And so really, I just kind of grew up on the internet in a small town and the internet was a window to the outside world and programming was a way for me to, you know, immortalize my sort of ideas and my creative side on the internet in such a way where I could see people. And I just sort of progressed from there and it never really was an option for me to 
pursue university. I'm very open with the fact that I dropped out of high school to pursue sort of learning on my own. And that's because I have a, a different learning style than most people. And that is the ability to drill in really deep and understand concepts really rapidly and fast, but also a willingness to only understand the things that are going to move the needle so that I can reserve bandwidth to learn other things. And as a founder and entrepreneur, that's really helpful, especially as a CEO, that's really helpful. But um, I'd say in software engineering, it was something that got me off to a really slow start, to be honest with you. I probably spent six years trying to learn how to build software by myself. And then in six months of learning from a really high performing team, I probably quadrupled my actual quality of delivery. And um, I think I always just follow that up with a, a you know, a very uh, tenacious work ethic is what I'd say that, um, you know, work through the evenings for very long periods of time and, and go really deep on concepts. And I think that was always helpful for me. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a, the best software engineer. I don't even know if I could use the word software engineer because I, I don't have a degree and certainly no rings, but I've always had an ability to, to understand technical concepts and troubleshoot them and use reasonable and probable deduction to sort of get to the highest leverage outcomes quite quickly. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, you know, one thing that you just touched or just spoke about that I, that I love is the fact that there's that connection between music and programmers and people, sure. you know, they think they're incredibly exclusive, but the talent that I see out there and when all of a sudden an instrument comes out and like everyone's good at it, you know, all of the engineers and it just shocks me. But I think, you know, there is that brain and there is also, I mean, code is beautiful. You know, I mean, a lot of people don't really understand that, but it's flexible in the way you can tell the story a, a thousand different ways in order to get the same outcome at the end. And I think music has a very similar thing. It's a personal journey to, to you know, to, 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 to realization. And, uh, you know, I'm really glad. What, what type of music were you playing at the time? I've played all sorts. I, uh, I definitely think that music, math, um, and, and programming are connected. I certainly think math is one of the things that's sort of at the center, logical thinking. Um, I grew up, I started in jazz music, in small jazz and, and orchestra jazz, and then certainly had my sort of punk rock and metal eras later on. And uh, I don't play that much anymore, but uh, drumming software is sort of one of those things where I also became really, really uh, enamored with the idea of, of rhythm and how to manage rhythm in collaboration with a band. So it was something that I think was a strong precursor uh, to the logical thinking, which led me down the path of programming. And, I, and I've, I've talked about this with others, is I think there's a very strong connection, not just on the creative side, but on the logical side as well with, mm -hmm. with music and, uh, and programming. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, and you, you're from, you said a small city, is that Halifax? No, not hell. That would be the big city. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in uh, Colebrook, Nova Scotia. So if you find Acadia University on the map and you yeah, head, uh, yeah, and you head west, you know, a few counties, that's uh, where I live. About 30 minutes from, from Wolfville is where I grew up until about the age of uh, 16, lived in Toronto. Then after that, Banff, Alberta, Toronto, and been here in Vancouver for the last 10 years. When you're when you're doing your, your your previous company, was that in Vancouver or was that out of Toronto? Yeah, so I moved here in about 2007, uh, started Retsley in 2013, August of 2013, met Mike Edwards, joined Grow Lab, and um, we sold Retsley in June of 2014. Um, so I was maybe five years into my journey here, and um, it was a very sort of short run at Retsley before it was acquired and then two, two and a half years at Zillow and then started CTO about three years ago. Very cool. Now you were, so you're part of the C100, I see. 
That's and right. yeah, and I, I, I've, I've gone down twice um, as an observer uh, to the the forty eight hours in the valley. Were you were you part? Have you done a forty eight hours in the valley as you know as yourself or with CTO.ai? Yeah, I've done it twice, and and also um, am as sort of a, a continuing contributing member um, in an ongoing way. So my first experience was with Retsley, and it was sort of an unofficial welcoming into the forty eight hours in the valley, and then more officially with CTO. And I'm a big uh, advocate of that program in particular when it comes to Canadian entrepreneurship. I, I think it's incredibly important for uh, Canadian founders to leave Canada and spend some time in Silicon Valley. I mean, it's obviously hard to do that right now, but in sort of the old normal, uh, I think that's one of the most important things that any founder can do to sort of calibrate themselves. And just like I said earlier on, I was programming for six years and, and it wasn't until I sat down with real programmers to measure my skills against them that I accelerated. It's the exact same thing with entrepreneurship. You really need to go and spend time with those founders who have uh, been through the things that you're going to try to go through. And that gives you such a greater um, foresight into how you approach and, and ambition, I think is another piece of it. Um, I think it's really, really important for Canadian founders. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And honestly, the C100, I mean, for those who don't know, the C100 is an amazing group um, of, well, it's more than 100 now. The, the original intent was that there was 100 of, you know, what, what I'm using air quotes that you may or may not see, but um, there were 100 of the top tech executives or business executives that yeah. really want to see success in Canada. So what their mission to do was, was to try to drive through their channels and their networks um, opportunity for, for Canadian entrepreneurs. And then they have, um, so twice a year, I think the 48 hours in the, in the, the Valley, it's, it's at least the programming's time. changed a little bit recently. They they've shifted things around a little bit. Um, the new, mm -hmm. new team there, Andrew, Laura, and amazing but traditionally oh, yeah. it had been two anchor programs with 48 hours being the major one i just saw 48 hours was announced again recently so i suspect that it's still in full flow just in a obviously virtual and remote setting yeah well you know it's it's a great place not only to to you know to meet um people down in the valley or there's people from jersey i mean like like vp of whatever from verizon and you know big people from um you know Amazon, Samsung, you name it, you're just shocked to find out, hey, you have the you know, connection with them. Um, but the other thing that I thought was so cool is you get to learn about all the companies in Toronto and in Montreal and in mm -hmm. Calgary. And these are kind of like, you know, they've already been vetted or at least somewhat vetted. So, you know, you get to see things that are that you wouldn't traditionally see because, you know, you, you, you I find, you know, I go to Toronto, I meet Toronto companies and it's very Toronto centric or you know, Western Ontario, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this is one of that's like, hey, we're all looking after each other. And there's also business to see there that I'm like, how can that be successful? Like I saw, I saw this one in the first day and they were, they made software for, um, I can't remember their name and I should, cause it's a great company. Um, they made software for um, marathons. And so what they did is they basically made the software free to the marathon and then it, you know, tracked the people and all that. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, the typical, uh, value add that the marathon needed, but then they charged, you know, I thought, well, okay, how successful could software be that you give away? But then I found out they charge five bucks a head. And when you think of how many people are in a marathon and that scales so well, and you know, you can identify marathon. It's like, Oh, oh that's an interesting business. So it's things that I would never have crossed, you know, cross, uh, um, 
bred over crossbreeds are wrong word, but you know what I'm, what, where I'm getting here. Um, I'm definitely going to say something weird like crossbreed at some point. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, you just get to, you get to learn from them. And, and I think that's great. And no, no, there's another great Canadian initiative, the CDL. Okay. Yeah. Now you were, you were a member of that too, weren't you? Or you went through one of the, 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 the ringer of the CDL. Yeah, I don't know if this is officially true, but I'm I might be one of the only or the only person who both went through it as a uh, member of the cohort or as an entrepreneur, and then also came back and was a mentor to other entrepreneurs, or at least I was one of the first to be doing that. And so when we started CTO, I did go through it, and it was a great experience. And then going back and continuing, I just signed up for the for the next um, cohort where there will be again. So I think 20 odd ventures that they bring together um, and the format of CDL, which I think is really nice and is refreshing from the traditional accelerator or group cohort model is in CDL. There's still sort of generally a camaraderie and, an, and a cohort that you're working with. However, it's your engagement with mentors and your engagement with advisors is certainly more structured. And the way they set it up is effectively eight sessions. Each session happens every eight weeks you sort of stand up in front of the room, which is what I would say almost a very large dragon's den. And they essentially measure you based on your commitments. So you will, in session one, you make commitments between then and session two, session two to session three. And so there's a strong accountability that's built into it there. And what's most important about this is you get that feedback, those things that you maybe are telling yourself in the back of your head, but you're not, you're ignoring. And you get incredibly smart people sort of picking apart different aspects of what you're doing. And they're doing it all out of sort of the intention to pay it forward to the next entrepreneur. So there's no equity component. So it means that there isn't an incentive necessarily. Now, there is lots of people there who will also invest. And so there's the reasons that people will come there to invest sort of get investment and accelerate that. But more importantly, it really forces the founder to ask themselves certain hard questions and then follow through with sort of structured mentorship, about four hours per mentor that you get assigned between sessions to move the needle from session to session. And a lot of that sort of sort of undertone of investment, which is not really formally built into the program, but is sort of predicated around the edges is really um, meritocratic in the fact that you show up and you sort of set the vision of your company. And then over the next sort of, you know, eight weeks and then eight weeks again and eight weeks again, you're either moving the ball forward or you're not. And that's just the harsh reality of entrepreneurship, which I think they found a really um, elegant way to build a support network around it that doesn't erode the directness that you need to hear when you're a early stage entrepreneur with lots of big ideas and a clear need to focus. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's, it's uh, based on merit is, is exactly what you said. And that, that's why I love, I mean, you, you're there first off because your idea is good. Someone believed it enough to accept you into the program, but then you have to sell it. Like it's, these are amazing people that are there to help you. And, and, and again, loved how you said it's, they're there just really, I mean, there's a path to investment, but really it's because they want to see great Canadian companies. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's a very different model from, from, I don't want to call it selfish, you know, Silicon Valley, because Silicon Valley is far from selfish. But the model is really like, okay, you know, we're going to throw on the wall, whatever sticks, sticks. But this one's like, okay, we're going to throw on the wall, but we're going to coach it down the wall. And the minds are, you know, very, very good. And and if you, you know, if you weren't here to do it, or if you're not here to do the work, then go, go away, because you're wasting your opportunity. Yeah, I you think know? it pushes founders more towards that ambitious, throw it at the wall, figure out what sticks. And they, But I think at the same time, it sort of sets a bar and it. And it's just a clear sort of like 
um, bar around, hey, as a Canadian founder, if you want to be competitive on a global scale, go compare yourself with these entrepreneurs who have done it before. And like the C100, there's these cohorts in Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, et cetera, East Coast. And what you're able to do is sort of look to the founders who came before you who found greater levels of success than you have and, and compare your strategies and, and, and they can challenge your strategies. And, and I think that's really important um, for driving up the ambition and the courage of Canadian founders to take bigger risks, because, you know, unfortunately we're sort of known around the world uh, as sort of this friendly place where we say, excuse me, and don't want to button line. But when it comes to entrepreneurship, sometimes you really have to go out there and sort of take what's yours. And there is a little bit of that competition that needs to be found in that competitive spirit if you're going to build a really big company. So their, their sort of mantra of, um, I think it's build something massive is sort of the, the undertone of what they say is they're looking for companies that have venture potential and then they're trying to maybe support them is one way of saying it, but I think challenge them into thinking bigger uh, and comparing themselves with that international opportunity that you'll see in, in a, in a more Silicon Valley uh, mindset from the start. Oh, for sure. And, and also, I mean, one thing that's, that I think is pretty unique about that program is it's really driven from the, from the universities. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you think the universities, oh, they're, they're, you know, the egghead institutions in the sky that, that aren't really business. It's kind of like thought and all that. And, that, and that's great. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they're also institutions where they bring us, you know, new minds, whatever it is that's going to do it. And because it's gone through the universities, like I know personally, because we have Amher, we have Tiffany, we have Jose, our CEO, they all spent time supporting you know, through the either the MBA program or through uh, through yeah. the undergrad program, supporting it. And I got to say, like Tiffany, she's she's a, a BA co-op student with us. She's got an incredible mind for for business. Like I I want her to work with us forever because she's so darn good. But the exposure she got through meeting people like yourselves and all this is like you can't get that at a university. Like real exposure to companies and to have that marriage, I think I think it's just you know fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a part of the idea came out of, I mean, Paul's talked to this a lot, but a lot in Vancouver, where I think it generally the founding principle was trying to take these ideas out of the lab, as Paul would always say here in Vancouver. And, and I think what's interesting about that is there's a real bridge in the gap between not just the average technology founder who's based in Gastown, but now when you go into the peninsula and you take things out of the lab and you try to start talking about the ambition and fundraising and VC interests, it's a very, it's a very um, important sort of education process for people who want to commercialize deep technology. And I think what's really good about it, in my opinion, is it's sort of pushed aside some of the conflicting interests of the old accelerator model and repositioned it in a way that I think it, it certainly isn't perfect. No, no process is, but it's definitely a process I would advocate for because again, you're getting that directness and that feedback that you need right from the start. Um, and you're not sort of being carried through a cohort around the promise of meeting different sponsors. Um, the interest really lies in being uh, supportive to the founder's ultimate ambitious goal and um, giving them that hard feedback sometimes if they uh, are not on the right track. For sure, for sure. Um, yeah, and I know in, well, there's just so many good companies who have, have come out of it. I mean, no, Chris, I went to high school with Chris from Dooley. Uh, yeah. Were you in that, you yeah, in that cohort? Chris, with him? Chris was in my, in my cohort. Yeah, Chris is great. That's, that's, Dooley is awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it just, and I love their focus also on the AI side of things, which, you know, of course, with Dooley, I think they're Dooley.ai, you're, you're CTO.ai. I think yeah. you, fit the, you fit the model right there, which is fantastic. Um, well, you know, recently you guys did something that I think is super cool, okay, with Cameo. Okay. Right. Now, for those who don't know, Cameo is a place where you can get 
A, B, and C raid actors uh, to do a birthday greeting or something like that. Now, what you did is um, had David Hasselhoff, love it, Flavor Flav and Carol Baskin. I'm supposed to pretend I don't know who that is, but I do know who that is. And you got them to explain DevOps. Tell me about the creative process behind that, because I just I'm just blown away by that whole idea. Yeah, I don't want to disappoint you. It wasn't there wasn't some long drawn out thought process. Uh, Tristan Pollock, who runs our community and has a lot of creative ideas um, around how to promote what we're trying to do, and I were sort of just having a conversation about what we call moonshots. And moonshots are essentially an idea that probably will not gonna is not gonna work, but it has so little effort, and a, and if it does work, it could be really big. Uh, and this is something where we just threw this idea out and we said, look, you know, it doesn't seem like it would be a lot of work to to try this. And if it if it fails, then there's not much lost other than we've supported a couple actors that are, you know, three actors that we think are, you know, deserve it. And mm -hmm. um, but if, it, if it's something that people think is funny as we do right now, it could kind of blow up. And um, and so I sort of met, we've sort of talked about it and then Tristan took it away and just kind of did it. And um, he messaged me one morning and he said, I'm releasing this. And I didn't even really know that we had finished it and it blew up and, and it got, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, impressions all over the internet from Reddit. It was on every social media platform. I think Twitter alone had about 200,000 views of the video and a, a long stream of people coming and, and checking out our community, our Slack community. Uh, so it was it was a pretty surprising and fun little thing. And, and we tried to back it up with a bit of a message that sort of reinforced our, our kind of position in the world, which is, you know, DevOps and software development is going mainstream and, and it's never been more complicated in the world. Let's, you know, ask some actors who have never worked with software development or DevOps to explain these concepts. And it was a bit to just bring awareness to this sort of idea that, you know, most software development is not just too complicated in, in many ways. Uh, it's also something that we take too seriously sometimes. Uh, DevOps is very serious. And, and sometimes, you know, whether it's sort of the office or it's, you know, uh, David Hasselhoff uh, talking about Docker, it, it's fun to just sort of step back from the technology for a minute and ask ourselves, uh, you know, what are we trying to uh, complete here? So it definitely was something people really liked. I, I think I only saw one negative comment and I think they just, um, didn't like that we had the cameo logo on there, but we those guys are great as well and deserve all the credit. So everyone else just thought it was it was great and um, happy to happy to have been able to serve people a little bit of DevOps joy uh, through it at, <laughs> at one point during a tough year. We we don't get enough DevOps joy through David Hasselhoff. I got to say right. that. So, <laughs> so the more the more the merrier. I say have it in German next time. But uh, yeah. um, well, well, when you um, were a, were a judge at Van Hacks, one of the one of the things that excited me the most to find out about you is you're also past lifeguard. Yes. Okay. How, how many how many years were you a lifeguard? Geez, it was so long ago. I did it when as soon as I was able to at sixteen. And then yeah. it was my summer job and sort of winter job. And in the summer, I would teach at the outdoor pool. In the summer, I would teach at the prison. And I did really? aqua, I did aquasize in the winter. You ever done aquasize? Aquasize yeah. is a, a good time. And then in the summer, it was more um, kids' lessons. I think it, I think I renewed twice, maybe. So I think I had it. I think I had six years, but I only worked for four of them. And I think the last two years that I had the certification, because it was two year certifications, I don't think <laughs> I actually worked as a lifeguard. I think I moved into tech at that point. Oh, fair enough. You know, yeah. I still get nightmares that I'm not certified, 
which is hilarious. Like I'll have dreams that I'm lifeguarding and all of a sudden I realize I can't do this. I legally can't do this. Yeah. Um, but, but, but with that said, you know, I would actually say I learned the most about management through my years of lifeguarding. Cause I, I, I mean, I, I did multiple, I did multiple jobs. I did the, um, you know, the typical union just get paid and leave uh, uh, municipal job, which great people, not the most exciting job, but it was a great people. But I did do, I don't know if uh, what the name is anymore, but Splashdown Water Park. Okay. The water right. slide. Well, I was actually the head lifeguard of that one for almost eight years. Um, so every summer at university, I would have my own little fiefdom where I'd hire between 50 and 70 people. Wow. And, you know, it actually taught me, you know, from a relatively early age, how to budget, how to, you know, just be around people, how to, how to lead by example, as opposed to just telling people what to do. And I think in an environment like lifeguarding, it's really important for that because, you know, these people are making minimum wage and they're well, a little bit more. I mean, the, the municipal pools obviously did better, but this is a private thing. And how do you make it so that their life is fun, that they want to come back? And I think we were successful. And I would actually say a lot of the what I learned there um, is what made TTT, because it's all about culture at the end of the day, right? You want to make it fun. Um, and uh, so so anyhow, I just wanted to tell what was your one, if you had to give advice from, from your days of lifeguarding, what's the one thing you learned the most from? I think it wouldn't be as constructive as that maybe in at the surface, but it was very constructive for me. I think I learned the value of working smart, not hard. Because I think in in, in uh, lifeguarding, unless you're sort of doing, um, you know, wake lifeguarding, like out on a beach with surf and everything, you have your surf creds. Um, it's pretty, you know, 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off. But you learn the importance of focus, uh, of attention, of disseminating a lot of disruptive information into the things that are the most critical. And then the other thing that I really took away from it was certain forms of communication, especially with children. Uh, and I thought one of the most rewarding pieces of lifeguarding was actually when working with toddlers who didn't have exposure to swimming and leveraging their naivety to help them get over the fear of water in such a way where they just became comfortable with it. And there's a, I think there's a real art to that. And I think mm -hmm. it's something where I've always appreciated a beginner's mind uh, throughout my career as a result of that and have tried to cater to that style of learning wherever possible because I think it's um, a freeing experience to support somebody who's sort of naive about what is in front of them with being successful despite not knowing what's in front of them. So I think that was a maybe the things I took away that were more constructive, but certainly working smarter instead of working harder was one of the core things I, I do recall as well. Oh, I totally, I totally dig that. You, you know, it's kind of, you just made me kind of think about it. I mean, at the end of the day, lifeguarding is about pattern recognition, right? You, you yeah. stand here, you, you scope this exact pattern yeah. and then you do it again. Yeah. And you're looking and you, for. You and know, you're building like a, like a profile of every person who enters the pool and based on their behaviors, you're starting to understand their risk assessment and probability of them drowning themselves or drowning someone else. And so it's almost like you're building this sort of like mathematical model of, risk exactly. distribution in the pool it's it's not necessarily that uh, exactly but yeah <laughs> that's that and aquasize you know which i oh. actually only got to do once but it was my last day so i i quit because i started my first startup and actually i that was okay. one of my because it was such a comfortable job by then it's just like i gotta quit like i gotta do it so i get hungry so my startup actually can take off, right? So and, it might be worth telling people what Aquasize is because yeah. that's a whole other whole other animal. Well, you, and, you know what? You're the full instructor. You tell you. Yeah. You, you, so you 
So aquasize is the act of aerobics in water. And most commonly, it's something that um, people with arthritic conditions um, and sort of maybe health issues or um, sort of scenarios where they want to take weight off their joints, but still get some exercise through using water as the friction. And you're essentially teaching a, um, a class of maybe somewhere in the five to 10 um, people, most often um, older women. It, it seems to be very, com uh, very some much something that they, they subscribe to quite a bit because of arthritic conditions. Uh, you'll often get the um, group of, of gentlemen that join, but very, very, not so much. Um, and I'll tell you, I've never had as much fun as I have swimming around in the pool, listening to, um, you know, listening to dance music and just having fun in a pool as I've had during those days. Now it was something that on occasion, uh, I think once my friends showed up and they took a little video and I, and I, and I was so into it that I had to, uh, I had to speak to that a little bit later, but I, I really enjoyed it because it, it was one of the things that I recall helped me get over sort of, I guess you could say the fear of performing. Like I had, I had experience with music, but aerobics in the water was something that was so foreign to me that when I went in there, I was like, if I want this job, I'm going to have to learn a totally different skill set than teaching little kids how to swim. I need to uh, cater to this sort of dance music and this high energy thing. And it's going to be real hard on a Saturday morning when you're 19 years old and just were allowed to uh, go to the liquor store for the first time. So it was a, it was an interesting experience that I learned a lot from. Well, I, lo I love the way you describe that because it's bang on. I mean, it's 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 people that also, I mean, they, I wouldn't say they're the most athletic. They're there to get exactly what you described. You know, they're, they're there to get it, but it's also such a social thing and it they is. love yeah. it. And yeah. they see you, I'm pointing to you as the instructor, as someone that's imperative in their life. And that's kind of nice too, you know? Um, yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get off the lifeguard thing. It's more of a community thing, but I was really glad to know that, uh, you know, that, that touched you. Cause I, I think it's, you know, you, you get decertified, but clearly it never leaves you. Yeah. 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 There's a, a, I'm sure there's a long uh, list of lifeguards who uh, are interconnected throughout that experience. It's, it's pretty similar to every lifeguard I've ever talked to that exactly how we described it. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, well, you know what? Let's leave it at that. Uh, let's leave it at the high point of lifeguarding, uh, Kyle. But okay. um, thank you, thank you so much for be for being on uh, you know the, the podcast today. Uh, this is it's been great chatting with you and, and learning a lot more about uh, the great stuff you and uh, CTO.ai do. Thanks, Chris. I always appreciate your uh, your high energy, uh, positive attitude, and uh, and viver viverous, <laughs> vibrant discussion. So thanks <laughs> for having me. Very glad to be here. Excellent. Thanks so much, Kyle. Hey, Afternoon Tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode, and that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever the heck you get podcasts from. Afternoon Tea is a new podcast focusing on the business of technology in Canada. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts on who we should be speaking with too. If you'd like to email us, please do so at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at 
T-T-T, that's three T's, dot studio, S-T-U-D-I-O. You'll notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us on social media at T-T-T underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.